0: Thank you, Abby. Uh, I want to just remind us, uh, this afternoon, there's a family in our midst here, a part of FC named the Reeds. They lost a child uh, just a couple, like a week or so ago, and they want to invite... Four months old. Four months old. And they wanted to invite anyone from our spiritual family that would like to come and, and celebrate and remember... Uh, their precious child. So that'll be here in the in the church service building right here in this room at 3 p.m. this afternoon. Any of you that would like to come and, and join us for that, so we'll be celebrating the life of baby Reed. <coughs> well, yesterday was August 8th. Yes. Um, it's a pretty significant date. Bob Jones, in 1975, has a near-death experience or he goes and stands before on the Lord August 8th, yeah. on August eighth. And I was just reflecting on this story this morning. This is kind of impromptu too. I just grabbed Mike back there. And I said, Hey, just remind us of those couple words that pertain to August 8th and what the Lord was gonna do here and how it relates to this building. And and then I felt stirred because Bob had another thing where the Lord spoke to him out of Psalm chapter twelve about praying and asking the Lord, help Lord, for the godly man ceases. So I wanted Mike to I just wanted to ask you, just tell a little bit about that story, and then I want to pray Psalm 12 just for our spiritual family as we go into the election season and everything that we're experiencing right now.
1: Well, you said it a little bit wrong in only one way. You said the Lord gave him a few things. The Lord gave him that many things. Volumes. (laughs) Volumes, yes. And I'm thinking, hmm, it was August 8th in 1975, 45 years ago. And uh, Bob had never had a prophetic encounter. This was the first one that that, uh, ignited or initiated his whole new trajectory for the next 40 years of many, many prophetic encounters. He has a death experience where his body, he hemorrhages and bleeds to death, seemingly. that's what it looked like, and his spirit leaves his body and stands before the Lord, and his life is over and he's standing there, and there's other people who are just coming before the Lord, and the Lord looked at him and put his hand up and said, I want to send you back because I'm going to raise up a group of young people in a few years in Kansas City, and then many years later, their children and grandchildren, I'm going to use them in a remarkable way in Kansas City and to touch the ends of the earth, and Bob uh, tells the story many times, and We've filmed it and showed it over the years. And he says, the oh, Lord, I, I don't really want to go back. I'm here. I'm with you. You're beautiful. This, this is where I want to be. And the Lord said, no, Bob, he said, I'm going to bring in over 1 billion souls at a great end time harvest. And Bob said, I'll go back for souls And the Lord said, I am going to bring in one billion souls. And he said something else quite disturbing. He said, there's going to be a third world war and there's going to be one billion souls, over one billion souls, but I'm going to raise up some young people in Kansas city soon, Bob, and it would be their children and grandchildren that I'm going to anoint in an unusual way. And so Bob, uh, comes back, uh, to his body. He says, I'm I'm the angel brings him back he sees his body on the bed and he looks at it and he goes this is so unusual and so now he because interspe- he didn't want to go into his body yeah, well, it looked horrible I mean you no know, we've never had a death experience you don't really think- I've looked in the mirror
0: every morning it feels like a death experience oh, okay. I go I don't want to who is the, what is that over there
1: <laughs> that's good and so he's standing, he's about to enter in and he sees these two angels in his bedroom and these two angels, they begin to prophesy about what's gonna happen in Kansas City and the angels say there's gonna be 24-7 prayer with singers and musicians. There's gonna be great signs and wonders and all these things of which I've told the story. I don't wanna go, I don't wanna tell a, our story today And uh, but we've got them all on the prophetic history on our website, just the prophetic history. I have 10 one-hour Testimonies. It took, you know, where I told the story for an hour at a time for ten sessions, because there's so many dimensions to this, and and so Bob uh, enters into his body, and he said the first thing that hit me, my body was racked with pain. (laughs) He said, "I want to go back." He goes, "I was in so much pain because he had hemorrhaged before that and died because of uh, something happening with his stomach," and so that was August eighth, nineteen seventy five, and there's an hour. Of things to say about what those angels said and the fullness of that story. Then seven years later in August, on August 8th again, that was just a big day. That was Bob's big day. 1982, again, he has a very dramatic encounter. And the Lord, so it's seven years later, August 8th, and the Lord says, the young people are coming in this first of spring, 1983. They'll be here the first of spring when the snow melts, and they will accept you. And many of you know that story. Nine months later, is when I meet Bob Jones and all these things happen, I don't want to go into that, but the, uh, the Lord then speaks to Bob, Psalm 12, verse one. And I'm gonna read this. And this is the real bird that was on your heart or, or the thing that stirred you. The Lord spoke Psalm 12, 1. It says, here's that David prays, help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the unfaithful disappear from among the sons of men. And the Lord looked at Bob and said, pray Psalm 12, 1. Pray, help, Lord, because so many godly people, there's so few of them around. And he, the Lord says, pray that prayer, and I'm going to answer it in this city. Of course, the Lord's going to answer it across the earth, too. Bob, the Lord was talking to Bob about Kansas City. He goes, I'm going to raise up a company of young people soon. And again, their children and their grandchildren, And there's gonna be a grace on them and they will be faithful to me. They will be faithful to the end. And those that stumble and fall, I will recover them and strengthen them and give them power and they will bring fame to my name and they will honor me and they will choose me even when many others are drawing back. And so that uh, over the last, what, that's 40, 45 years ago. I mean, it was 45 years ago in 75 and the other was 38 years ago. And so that's our prayer is that the Lord would raise up this generation, the next generation, whatever generation, the three generations. <laughs> Me, my children, and grandchildren is what the Lord always spoke to Bob. And so I'm gonna pray for the three generations. And of course, the Lord's gonna do this all over the earth, but he gave Bob this very specific word of Psalm 12:1 for Kansas City and for this place right here. So Father, I ask you, for the older generation, I ask you for our sons and daughters in their 30s and 40s. I ask you for our grandchildren that are, you know, f- five and 10 years old or maybe not born yet. I ask for this grace of God to be faithful, Lord, this grace of God to rescue us from compromise or from any stumbling. I ask for the winds of renewal, the winds of grace that you would raise up a faithful company of people. Lord, not just in this fellowship, but all over this city, even in a thousand congregations. In the north, the south, the east, and the west, make Kansas City a city that's a trophy in the grace of God, of your kindness and your mercy to weak and broken people. And do this in the cities of the earth, Lord, and bring in a billion souls. And so we just declare over our children and grandchildren, That there's a grace to be faithful. There's a grace to be recovered. There's a grace to be rescued. There's a grace to walk in freedom. There's a grace to bring fame to his name. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen and amen. That's the shortest version of that I've ever given. That was short.
0: I was surprised. I was like, we might just keep going. Well, uh, we're gonna do part two of... The message from last week, growing in confidence through the cross of Christ. And uh, if you'd like the teaching notes, you can find those on our website right now. If you want to get on your smartphone, you can download those or you can download them later. But they're on our website at forerunnerchurch.com. And we're going to look at Galatians 2 verse 20. You can turn there in your Bible if you'd like to. I'm going to read this and and pray. We're going to look at this again. Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Father, we ask for that spirit of revelation that quickens our hearts to encounter Jesus, to know him, to love him, to see him, to experience the riches of the glory of grace that's been given to us by the cross. We ask that your presence would come, that you would touch our hearts, that you would release those arrows of truth this morning by your spirit that pierce us, that transform us, that encourage us, that cause us to realign And reconnect with your power and your glory in a fresh way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you've ever read the book of Galatians, where this verse is taken from, you know that it's kind of one of Paul's most feisty books in the New Testament. It's written for those of you out there that are feisty. I know some of you, I won't ask you to identify yourselves, but you probably would identify yourself anyway. For those of you that are feisty, you would love the book of Galatians if you get into it in a deeper way. I mean, Paul is so savage, to use the cultural term, you know, he's so savage in his language in the book of Galatians because what he's doing is he is ripping apart human religion and human works and the perversion of the gospel. I mean, he's using such strong language in chapter three. He's He's telling them, he's exhorting them, he's going, who has bewitched you? Who has put a spell on you that you have so quickly departed from the cross and from the grace of God, and you've so quickly just gotten into your rhythm and routine of religion? You know, if there was a book in the New Testament, I mean, the whole New Testament's written for us, but if there was a book written for the Bible belt of believers, where there's Many times there could just be stale religion. Many times there can just be this sheen of godliness on the outside. It's like, you know, everybody, they have their kids' hair combed nice, and they show up, and the shirts are tucked in, and everybody's just acting like everything's okay. But inside, inside their spirit, it's like they're a whitewashed tomb with dead bones on the inside. And there's no life in their faith. There's no hope in Christ, there's no delight in Christ, and and Christianity is just a moral ethic that someone's just supposed to follow, because that's just the right thing to do. And you know, with this group, you know, anybody that kind of breaks that moral ethic, well, they're the enemy, and so we come with the, the rules and the commands of the scripture, we start beating them over the head, and we fight online, and we fight in person, and We argue and all this stuff, I mean, this is kind of maybe where the Bible belt's been at, you know, and the book of Galatians just comes in like this piercing arrow, this sword just convicting to the very heart, you know, we all have this propensity to get into the rut and routine of religion. I know that I do. It's much easier to go through the motions and just show up and, you know, kind of, cross my T's and dot my I's and put on a good face and everything when often on the inside my soul is at war with the spirit of the age, but I've got no one to talk to about it and and things are tense and relationships are heated and well what about the money? How is your money? And and what about the lust of the eyes and the lust of flesh and the cares of this life are trying to weed their way into my spirit and I could just click into over you know click into autopilot mode. And just kind of drive to church on Sunday and, and go do my prayer time and just say grace at the dinner table. Hello? This is talking, to you know, Galatians begins the war against our dead religion. And the Lord's not interested in dead religion and, and nobody thinks they're religious. That's the problem. I've never heard a person stand up and say, I have the religious spirit. I mean, nobody wants to own up to that, but everybody in the body of Christ stands up and goes, this guy has the religious spirit. I've heard that 1,000 times. What is happening right now? You know, and, and Paul begins to put forth the glory of the gospel, and what he's trying to do is he's trying to build confidence in the heart of believers in Galatia that their confidence in there and their boast is to be in Christ and, and the power of his redeeming work. We're supposed to live alive in God and be joyful in God. You know, it's so many cranky Christians are out there trying to convert people to a cranky religion. Nobody wants to join. Because it's boring. If you just show up to a church and community and you just try to live Christianity without Christ, I mean, that is horrible. You get no drinking, you get no drugs, you can't do cigarettes, you can't do rated R movies. You can't do this, you can't do that and all that. You gotta give 10% of your money and you just have to. You gotta be nice to your wife, your kids gotta look clean and they gotta pass in school and they can't say bad words. And imagine doing all that stuff without knowing the person Jesus. I mean, it's horrific, To do Christianity without Christ is just a clanging gong. I mean, it's like, you might as well just go do any other religion out there if you don't know the man. What makes Christianity so unbelievable and enjoyable is the person of Christ that knows us and that fellowships with us and that talks to us and and satisfies the longing of our heart in a way that nothing on this earth can. But if you don't believe that, if you don't believe that Jesus truly can satisfy the longings of your heart and can fascinate you and can delight in you and can blow your mind with his beauty, then you're just living in this Christian ethic, just trapped in the four walls of a church. You've got too much knowledge about hell to leave, but you've got no knowledge of the man, Christ Jesus. Beloved, this is where the church of Galatia was at in Paul just comes right in, and he just starts ravaging this cultural, religious spirit. Enough is enough. And we've got to encounter the man, we've got to be in it for the right reasons, and we've got to have our confidence and our, and our boast in God, and we've got to be overflowing in love and good works and power and beauty and holiness because of a man, not because of a command written on a wall though his commands are not burdensome. Paul's confidence was established in the cross of Christ. That's where it all begins, at the cross. You go to the cross, and and there the Lord wants to begin to establish you in confidence before God. What does confidence do? Confidence causes us to run towards the thing that we're confident in. When we have confidence, our, our strength is bolstered. We we have our head up. We have our, our chin up. You know, you've ever seen a, a 12-year-old kid walking around, he's confident. He knows he's all that. He's got the cool clothes and the cool hair, and all the little other 12-year-old girls just, their hearts just flutter when they see him, you know, and he's just strutting around, his head up. He's confident because when you're confident, you run into something. God wants us confident in him. He wants us to run into him in every season of the soul, not just when the blessing is pouring out upon our lives and we got a little bit more money and and hey, our neighbor wanted to ask us questions about Jesus and hey, I dropped off some groceries for the lady with the kids and she didn't have enough money and so I got my confidence bolstered in a circumstance. Hello? Hello? The Lord says, I don't want your confidence in any of those outward things. I want your confidence to be in me. I want your confidence to be bold before my throne of grace. That in your hour of trial, in your hour of desperation, when your marriage is falling apart, when the finances are falling apart, when you feel so condemned, when you feel so accused by the enemy, that you run to me confidently. Paul goes, uh, my confidence is in Christ. He uses the term all throughout the New Testament, I'll boast in God. It's what my, my boast is in. We don't use that term a lot today, but but it's when he goes, I'm going to strut in one thing. It's the works of Jesus that have been exchanged for my dead works. My confidence is in the Lord, and it's It's in what he says and what he does and what he believes. My confidence is in him. And I take my weak, dead works that don't amount to anything, that don't earn me anything before the throne of heaven, and I exchange it for the works of Christ. And that all happens at the cross. The cross afforded Paul to live confidently, to live this crucified life with God being this vessel of God, walking in the will of God, being subject to God. I mean, there's, you know, you read through the Bible, and aside from Jesus, Paul stands out as one of the most radical guys for the Lord, man. You know, I read this guy's life. I'm like, br- am I even saved? Like, what's even happening right now? Sometimes I don't even like to read about the Bible characters, because they come across you know, as so devoted, and we know they were broken and whatever, but I compare to my own life. I'm going, what is happening right now? I want to live like that. This guy is shipwrecked, beaten with rods. He's stoned. He's coming back to life. He's preaching the gospel. He's going to prison for the gospel of Christ. He's put on trial for the hope of the resurrection in Jesus. If I'm put on trial someday, I want to go on trial for the hope of the resurrection of Christ. Everything else isn't really worth standing trial for, honestly, to me. There's a lot of reasons people go on trial. You know, we got all sorts of things happening in politics and government, and man, if I'm going on trial, I want it to be like Paul for the hope of the resurrection. If I'm going down, that's what I wanna go down for. That's just me. The cross provides two things. Well, it provides a bunch of things, but I'm gonna highlight two things. The cross provides the legal confidence that is necessary before God. You know, his courtroom, if you didn't know this, is in the heavens. So the only way you're getting into that courtroom is if you have the legal privilege to be able to go there. The only way you get an audience with God is if you have the legal grounds to know there. You know, the Lord had a a conference call with Moses at the burning bush, and the first thing he goes, he's like, before we go any further, take off your shoes, we're on holy ground. See, there were some legal things that had to happen in order to have fellowship with God, do you see? The cross gives us the legal confidence before God. I'll talk about that more in a minute. And it also gives us a relational confidence in God through Christ. A relational confidence. You you can know God, the transcendent, holy, other than, timeless, ancient of days. Y'all, you can know him in a personal way. You have personal fellowship And not just fellowship, but you have union with his spirit where he comes and dwells inside of you. He says, you're my temple, and I want to dwell with you, and I want to walk with you, and I want to show you things that are going to blow your little Midwestern mind. See, and it's this second part that's often neglected. The relational confidence before God. Number one, we often, many, believe in the legal consequences of the cross. We hear about the cross. You, you see the cross. It's an icon. It's a, it's a symbol. It's that he did it. That's what it becomes. Just in our overfamiliarity, the cross just becomes an icon that says, he did it, well, hallelujah, I could just get on with my life. But more people are familiar with the legal consequences of the cross, and those are glorious, and I'm not trying to minimize those at all, because, I mean, becoming the righteousness of God happens to be a really good thing. Having your name written in the book of life, being brought into the kingdom of the Son of his love, being Predestined and ordained and, and adopted, and crying out, Abba, Father, I could call him Father, and I'm legally righteous before God at the new birth without doing one good work, without feeding one poor person, without tithing one time, without praying one time, having a family devotional one time. I mean, the thief on the cross, he didn't have time to do any of that stuff. He couldn't tithe, he couldn't go serve the poor. He didn't have time to go get his Bible reading plan together and, you know, faithfully do it with a bunch of people on that cool app for six months. He didn't fast. Well, he probably did fast. I mean, he was on the cross. Anyway, I'm not gonna. I mean, this guy, he's hanging. Have you thought about this before? And he goes, at first, they're kind of like mocking Jesus, him and the other thief, and then he goes, wait, 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 no, no. I'm pretty sure this guy is the son of God. I mean, that is a profound statement that in the moment of of suffering and desperation, he acknowledges you are the son of God, and Jesus looks over at him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. What good work did that thief accomplish on the cross? Faith the confession of faith he he saw and he believed the lord let him see through the veil this isn't just another criminal this isn't just another revolutionary that's trying to stir people up to get rome mad at them this isn't just him this is this is the son of god and he was able to peer through that veil and go wait a second and jesus says today you will be with me in paradise see that's the power of our salvation. That's the power of being justified by faith, made right with God, right there in that moment. He was legally, he went from death to life in one confession. He went from burning for all of eternity to burning in unapproachable light in glory and beauty forever in one confession. Maybe there's some here this morning You've never made that confession, and you need to pass from death to life just like the thief did. And you need to put your faith and your trust in Christ and his work upon the cross to pay for your sins so that you can know God forever and that you can delight in his goodness and drink of the rivers of pleasure and be filled with love and joy and peace and patience forever and ever and ever. This morning, you can pass from death into life just like that thief did. And there's a second part of the cross that causes us to be confident in him that's often neglected by the body of Christ because people hear the message of salvation. they go, "Oh yay, I'm saved and I've passed from death to life, but then the life they begin to live isn't their isn't, isn't Christ's life, it's their life. Jesus becomes another on their pinterest board he becomes another little word in their bio on twitter well i'm this alumni and i was born this year and i work here and oh yeah jesus and he just becomes an addition into their life rather than an obsession Rather than a central peace and a, and, a, and a living, vibrant relationship where it's ongoing and it's, Lord, what would you have me do today? What's on your heart today? Lead me by your spirit. You're walking around in your office at work and you're dialoguing with the Holy Spirit. Lord, what's on your heart today? What's on your heart today for my manager? What's on your heart today for my coworker? What's on your heart for my family? How can I pray for them? How can I love them? How can I show them the person of Christ through my life? Many do not grasp this relational consequence of the cross, i.e., that the payment of our sin results in a union and joyful fellowship with God forever. That's the part that we're missing out on. That's the part why Christians look like they've bitten a lemon. They look sour. They look harsh. They look mean. And somebody's like, hey, can I come to your church? And they're just like, well, are you drinking? I don't know if you can. I don't know if you're allowed in the door. Are you living with your boyfriend? Are you living with your girlfriend? Rather than introducing him to a a person, they're introducing him to A series of rules and ethics and regulations. Well, you gotta do this stuff to know God. Beloved, that's the spirit of religion. We gotta get people knowing Jesus. People know our political views real good. Never heard applause die out faster. See, I set you up. I did it. It was accidental. But what? let me ask you this, because I don't know if this is true of every person, but let me ask you this. What would your neighbors and your friends on Facebook say about you? What would they know about you? What, what do they know about you? They, they might know your stance on COVID and face masks. They might know your stance on the political climate and your candidate. They might know your stance on the Second Amendment or the First Amendment or Black Lives Matter. Do they know your stance on the Son of God. Do they know where you stand? Do they know what your life is about? Is your life about him? And do other people know that it's about him? We gotta, I gotta shift some things in my life. I gotta be about Jesus. I gotta, I gotta, I wanna die on the hill for Christ, the hope of the resurrection. That's what I wanna be about. That's what I want my life to be about. That's what I want my children to know about me. I want them to know that, man, my dad, he just loved Jesus. He just knew him. He just wanted him all the time, and he sang about him, and he prayed to him, and he talked about him, and he, he showed us Jesus in our home. He exemplified Christ, and when he messed up, he admitted it, and he repented, and he just kept steering us back and telling us about the love of Jesus and the gospel of Christ and that we have a hope in him. Like, that's what I want my children to know. You're looking at the notes in paragraph two, just a second of review, the Holy Spirit, he's establishing the body of Christ in confident love. He's gonna have a bride that is so confident in him. That just looks him right in the face. Can you imagine appearing before the most powerful man or woman on the earth? I don't even know who that would be. Could be the richest or most powerful or most whatever. But you know that they... They hold the power over your life. Can you imagine just walking in, kicking open the door, walking straight up to where they are, looking them straight in the face, being like, I'm here. And you don't look away. There's no shame. There's no fear. There's no terror in your own soul. Jesus is gonna have a bride that, Looks him right in the face. That's just so, she's so enthralled with him. She's so in love with him. Her heart has been so purged by fire and purified that she just looks right at him. Ephesians 5 tell us that she'll be glorious, holy, blameless, without reproach. He's going to have a glorious church. That's where this thing is going. He's establishing her in confidence. Confidence in Christ causes us to to draw near to him. Well, how does he do this? I'm kind of skipping ahead, but, but how does he do this? Well, Hebrews 12 tells us how he does this. He says, I'm gonna shake everything you're confident in that isn't me. I'm going to shake it. I'm going to disrupt it. I'm going to disrupt your life. I'm going to disrupt every foundation stone you've put into your own soul. I'm going to start shaking that foundation stone until you go, hey, whoa, something's going on. Something's wrong. He says, I'm going to disrupt you. I'm going to disrupt my people, my bride. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna dis- to get into your life. I'm going to mess with your life. Do you know that when you followed Jesus, he became the master and the master gets to mess with all the affairs, all the affairs of our life. Nothing escapes him. He gets it all because we prayed it at youth group and you didn't even know what you were praying at the time but you know, 20 years ago, 50 years ago in youth group, you said, Lord, I wanna be yours. I give you all my life and he said, thank you. He goes, now I'm gonna come and shake everything that can be shaken. Hebrews 12 is serious, man, because if your life is being shaken right now, it could be that he is beginning to shake some of the things that you're confident in because he wants you confident in him. He wants you confident in his son. He wants you confident in the blood of Jesus that you are robed and redeemed, that you're adopted, that you're a son, you're a daughter, you have a destiny, and God, you're gonna live forever. He goes, I want you to govern with me, but before that happens, we gotta shake some things in your life right now because your life is propped up. Your life is propped up, and you got, you're propped up with finances, and you're propped up with your cool relationships, and you're propped up with your Bible knowledge, and you're propped up with your friendship group, and they're all cool, and they all love God, so I'm propped up. He goes, I'm going to come in, I'm going to start shaking some things right now. I'm going to shake your time. I'm going to shake your liberties. I'm going to shake your freedoms. I'm going to shake your politics. I'm gonna shake your finances, the economy. He goes, I'm gonna shake it all because all the nations, Haggai 2 tells us is gonna come to the desire of the nations, Jesus. Yeah, I'm not gonna let anyone or anything be glorified more than my son. Who can can be more glorified than Christ, the God-man, the perfect lamb? The one in whom is all the delight of the father. I mean, the voice of the Lord breaks and he says, this is my beloved son. If the father loves something, we should love that thing too. If the father says, my son is gonna rule, we should rule with him and be subject to him because he's gonna inherit, Psalm 2 tells us, all the nations. Everything will be his. Everything that we have is already his. It's, it's already his, it's already, a, it's just a stewardship. He says, this is all mine. The ends of the earth are my possession. I'm gonna get the nations as my inheritance. And he goes, I'm so committed to this. I will pay the price to redeem the whole world. I'll hang upon a tree as an innocent man and become guilty so that the sins of the whole world can be paid for because I'm gonna inherit that whole thing. He says, it's mine. It's mine, and your life and my life is his. We might think it's ours, but it's actually his. And when there's something in our life that we're holding on to, that we're clinging, that's propping us up in a false confidence, he comes in, and and just like a father, he begins to, to touch that thing, to shake it, to test it, to test the foundation of our own life. It's not because he's angry, it's because he's kind. What if he didn't test it? What if he didn't shake us? What if he didn't stir up the church in America? What if there wasn't a shaking that was happening? We would just go on, business as usual, propped up. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up when it's in the foundation of our lives. He goes, I want you to get gold, tried, refined in the fire because when you take pure gold and you put it in the fire, it comes out just the same. He wants to take his people, and they're gonna walk through the fire of trouble. They already are, we're just not. The body of Christ all over the earth, they're they're walking through fire and trouble and flame and persecution. They're walking through it, but we're like, well, we'll take it seriously when it gets to our shores. But he goes, I want you to, you're gonna walk through it, you're gonna be tried by the fire, by the flame. The testing is coming. And I want you to be confident in Christ. I want you to be a Christ man, a Christian. This is who he wants us to be. Listen to this verse, Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10. This is the declaration of the bride. It's poetic language. It's an allegory, but it's talking about Christ and his relationship with the church. She says this. She goes, I am my beloved's." She goes, I belong to him. And when she says, I am, it's, it's her full identity. It's everything that she has and believes and holds on to. It's all of her gifts and talents and opportunities, and it's everything. She says, I am his. I'm not anyone else's. I won't be shared I don't want any other boyfriends in my life. I don't want any other love. She says, I am my beloved's, and and she goes, his desire or, or his affection is towards me. Jesus is after me. He's a jealous God. James tells us that the spirit of the Lord yearns jealously. That's a marital term for there's a boyfriend in the relationship, he goes, I'm jealous for you. I, I want you because my affection burns so brightly for you. He goes, I want you to be established in this, confident in my love. Well, I mentioned these last week, but three questions that may help us identify what our confidence is in. Listen to this. When I hit, ask yourself this. When I hit rock bottom, what is it that I turn to? Or to say it differently, when the, when the chips are down in my life, what is it that I turn to? Some of you have been through seasons in your life where the, the chips have been down, you know? You've hit rock bottom. What, it, what did you turn to in that moment? That's what your confidence is in. A lot of people that are young, you know, like me, we haven't been through so many trials, let's say, we haven't hit rock bottom per se, but let me, let me phrase it a little bit differently if you're a little younger in the room. When you have free time and free money, and you know no one is watching, what do you do? What do you go to? What do you delight yourself in? That thing, that thing is your confidence. It's part of your foundation, whatever that thing is. Ask yourself this what has to go right in my life for me to sing with joy? What has to go right in order for me to, to glorify God and 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 feel delighted in by Him? What has to go right for me to sing with joy in my life? Number three, what has to happen for me to have delight and be fully satisfied on the inside? What is it that, that gnawing thing on the inside that feels unfulfilled and, and you wake up with it on Monday morning and, and then you're confronted with it on Wednesday night and then Friday morning that ache is still there and, and then Saturday it's still, you're trying to blot it out with sports, you're trying to blot it out with some, with some media or TV or whatever it is. You're trying to blot out that ache. What is that ache connected to and how does that ache get satisfied? That's your confidence. That's what you want. That's what you love. Jesus says, I wanna be that ache of your soul. I want you to mourn for me. I want you to long for me. The bridegroom is taken away, it says, and then they will mourn. They'll long for him in Matthew 9. She wants him. She goes, my life is not right until he's here. Skip towards the end under paragraph four. It's uh, C. Galatians 2.20, like we read at the beginning, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Paul had an understanding of the cross that when Jesus went down into the ground, Paul and his life and his confidences, his boasts also went into the ground. All of them. And he said, look, I had reason to boast. I was a religious Pharisee. I was zealous. They fasted twice a week. They gave to the poor. They prayed their phylacteries off. They went hard, man. They were the they were the astute, they were the most social conservatives, pro-life, praying, intense guys out there, the Pharisees. Paul goes, all of that had to go into the ground with Jesus, I had to die to all of it because my confidence could not lie in any of it. My confidence had to come from another source. It had to be from another life and from another age and another power. It couldn't be connected to a kingdom in this world. It had to be connected to a kingdom that was coming to this world. Daniel 2, a stone cut out without hands, a kingdom that will not be destroyed, and it comes and it strikes the feet of all the kingdoms of this world, and it threshes them, and it blows them like chaff, and then it grows up into a mountain of God, and the Father is living there. It's the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom of our Lord in Christ. Paul was motivated to live a crucified life of passion for Jesus, through the revelation of Christ's love and his free gift. Look at this. He says, I live by faith in the Son of God. I have confidence. Put the word confidence there. I have confidence in the Son of God. Well, what was the source of that confidence? It was this. It was that he loved me and that he gave himself for me. The cross establishes these two realities. It reveals and demonstrates the love and the affection of God for us, and it causes us to know that God will freely give us our righteousness. He'll freely satisfy the things of our heart, the things of our spirit, and it makes us grow in confidence with him. Paul had faith in the Son of God, number one. Faith is not just the belief that something can happen, but something has happened. You have faith in God. Does that mean that God can save you from your sins? Or does that mean that God has saved you from your sins? Because the guy in the place of prayer that prays like God can save him is begging God to come and save him. He's going, I'll I'll do better. I'll get my act together. I, I won't do it the same way, I won't fall into the same pitfalls. But the guy or gal that prays like Christ has paid for their sin comes before the throne of grace with what? Boldness. Because they know something has happened. That Christ has paid for their sins. That his blood has washed away their iniquity. That they have become the righteousness of God. That they are a new creation in Christ. And they cry out to him. What do they cry out? Romans 8 tells us the spirit cries out, Abba, Father, who can call God Father? Only he that has been redeemed by the Son, who knows that they've been washed, not with their own works, not approved by their own deeds, but washed in the blood of Jesus. And Paul is confident in this reality. There's a difference between faith and belief. We gotta have faith, we gotta have confidence in God. Faith acts upon it. Faith gets out of the boat. When Jesus is walking on the water, belief belief knows if God made me walk on the water, I could do it, but faith gets out of the boat. Faith walks on the water. Faith is, is confidence, it's the translation of belief into our emotional chemistry, into our lives, into our words, into our activity, the faith of God flows through me and it flows out in prayer and good works and generosity, kindness, humility, meekness, bearing the fruits of the Spirit. The revelation of the affections of God that flowed through Paul, Paul says that he loved me, Christ loved me is a key to unlocking confidence before God. If you don't know that God delights in you and wants you, who wants to go before him? Who really wants to go into a prayer room, you know, down the road, as an example, come to the prayer room and, well, God hates me, but here I am. He really despises me. He's really disappointed. I'm a hypocrite. I'm hopeless. I can't do it. I just messed up again last night. My life is falling apart, but, but he's angry at me. I'm sure of that. Well, how do you know that? Well, my earthly father was angry at me, so God must be that way. Christ knows all my sins, so he must be angry at me because that's what I do to other people. When I find out their sins, I'm angry at them. So if God knows my sin, he must be angry at me. Who wants to go in to a prayer room and, and sit there for 30 minutes or an hour and talk to an angry God? Have you ever had a real mean, angry neighbor? I mean, the last thing you're trying to do is try and go over to his house and knock on the door and, hey, brother, let's hang out. It's like, you know. <laughs> Get off my property for I part your hair like the red seed. Scary, man. Nobody wants to hang out with someone angry. Paul goes, I am confident, I have faith, and I boast in the cross because I know that he loves me. I know that his affections are on me, that that Jesus, the bridegroom God, burns with love for his bride. He looks at her with such kindness and, and tenderness. I mean, he's really in love. He's really in love. Let's end with this, paragraph D. And Revelation 12 gives us this, this insight into what it means to, to overcome and where the church in the most intense, dark hour of human history, where does she put her confidence? Let's read this. Revelation 12, verse 10, it says, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now salvation and strength, And the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brethren who has accused them before our God day and night. He's been cast down. Listen to this, verse 11. And they overcame him, the dragon, Satan, the evil one, the serpent, the spirit of this age. They overcame him by what? The blood of the lamb. The cross, that was their confidence. Because in the story, if you read it, this is gonna sound intense, but in the story, they're dying. But they go, my confidence isn't shaken because my hope is not in this life. My hope is not in the protection of my goods. My hope is not in any other thing. My hope and my confidence is in the blood of the Lamb, Christ's cross, because his blood is gonna get me out of the ground. I'm gonna be raised again on that last day. It says that by the word of their testimony, they overcame, meaning they had confidence in the redemptive work of God in their life. Their own testimony, they had confidence in the cross. It wasn't just an icon, it was a reality that burned within them and that shaped their actions and prayers and deeds in this life and they did not love their lives to the death. They didn't just embrace Christ's cross, but they embraced their own in the crucified life. We're gonna end there. Let's stand if you're able to or you would like to. We bring this service to a close. Father, we cry out this prayer, Psalm 12, that we prayed earlier. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases. Help, Lord. We ask, Lord, for help from heaven. We ask for help for the church. We ask for help for this spiritual family, Lord, this body. We ask for help. We need the helper. We need to understand our desperate situation. Where we're at, we're about to, as a nation and as a people, we're heading into an election season. We need help from God. Hello? We need help. But He goes, I want you to ask for help. I want you to come to me. I want you to acknowledge the need of your own spirit. What is your confidence in? What is your boast in? What is what do people know about you that they would say is your confidence in your boast? Help, Lord. We look around and we see that the godly man ceases and that the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. We ask for that outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the helper that would come. Jesus said, I'll send you the helper. And they prayed and they waited in an upper room and then the helper came and visited them like tongues of fire, set the church ablaze with love and passion for Christ. We ask for that same outpouring of the Holy Spirit we ask for that same impartation into our families and into our friendship groups and amongst our students and interns and the old and the young and the children's ministry and the teenagers we ask for that help from heaven the godly man ceases help us Lord purify us that when the the shaking touches our life that we wouldn't cling on to that sinking ship We wouldn't cling on to that thing but that we'd give it up before you we'd say i'm crucified with christ it's no longer i who live my life is not my own my life is not my own it's it's yours you purchased me it's all yours in the life that we would now live in the flesh we would live by faith in him who loved us who washed us, who gave us himself. We ask you, Lord, for the spirit of the Lord to move through this spiritual family. Come God, come God, come God. Just wherever you are, you just say, I just, I need that fresh confidence in Christ again. I just need the, I need him to tell me again how he sees me and and how he loves me and enjoys me again. I've been so weary. I feel so worn out. I just want to invite you to raise up your hands before the Lord. You just need that fresh wind of the spirit, the spirit that releases the testimony of Jesus, the spirit of prophecy. Help us, Lord. Here we are. Here we are, God. Tell us again. That you delight in us tell us again that you've washed us tell us again that it's your works that commend us to god the father tell us again that you've justified us that you've made us righteous that our names are written in heaven tell us again tell us again break into the fallow dry ground of our own souls pour out your spirit on the inside pour out your spirit god in the name of Jesus, come Holy Spirit,
1: inside
0: of me,